Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you. This hour is another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. $7.5 billion. $7.5 billion. That's the price that Microsoft has paid to acquire GitHub and turn it into Git 365. Or so a lot of people are speculating. We'll get into that as the show goes on. We're coming to you live from Minneapolis, St. Paul uh, this afternoon, and we are on our way to Southeast Linux Fest. Now, I wrapped up probably the most intense, most busy, most crazy couple weeks of my entire AltaSpeed career. And when that concluded, uh, well, actually really before it concluded, I started to get bombarded with uh, discussions and requests and all of this for Southeast Linux Fest because we are doing something that we have never done before. A Jupiter Broadcasting itself, no Linux conference has done what we are going to do. Details about that are coming up later in the episode. If you'd like to make your voice heard, give us a call at 1-855-450-6624. That number again, 1-855-450-NOAA. I'd love to hear your opinion on the Microsoft buyout of GitHub. Later on in the show, when we get to it, we'll go to Chaz in New York. Chaz starts us off this hour. Hey, Chaz, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Excellent, sir. How are you? Pretty good. I got nothing on the uh, Microsoft GitHub, uh, but I did have a question that I wanted to ask you about uh, keeping your computer functional if you're not going to be in a stand-up building or uh, an area with a dedicated power source or something like that. Um, Sure. Now, you've been a pretty big advocate of USB-C, and unfortunately, I bought the X260 right before the X270 came out, so USB-C isn't going to be a very valid option for me. But in an emergency situation, my laptop is going with me. and in an emergency situation, I imagine that my car is probably going to be powering a lot of things. So I'm wondering what your sure. opinion on, on the best way to keep my laptop powered is, aside from constantly hop-swapping swap, batteries, because I know I could do that, but there's a financial cost associated with that. And what's the best way to keep it uh, connected so you can stay up-to-date with information? Is it a Ting SIM card? I know last week you were talking about uh, using ham radio to keep your commuter connected want to hear your thoughts on you know what the best way to go about that is yeah i got you that makes perfect sense jazz that's a great question when we're talking about a roughing a roughing it it environment are we talking roughing it as in i work construction and i go to a lot of job sites are we talking roughing it like 
a hurricane hit the East Coast, and now Chaz from New York is really up a creek without a paddle, no pun intended, and so he is going to be relying on his own survival skills, uh, not survival skills as, you know, like Bear Grylls drinking wee-wee in the woods, but like, you know, I need to provide my own power, I need to run my laptop and stuff like that, and weather the storm, so to speak. What, what kind of scenario are we talking about here? Uh, the latter, definitely the hurricane, pandemic, uh, collapse of the dollar, potential government fall type thing. I got you. Okay, sure. So I have a go bag, and uh, there's a lot of people that would call me crazy, and then there's a lot of people that would call me prepared. I I don't consider myself paranoid. I don't think I'm, I'm being paranoid I'm about it. Group. I know. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there are, I think that we see natural disasters. I lived through the, the flood in 1997 in North Dakota. So big, if you're not familiar with that, if somebody's not familiar with that, large flood happened in 1997, displaced basically the entire city of Grand Forks, destroyed the entire city of Grand Forks. Um, you know, you had floodwaters that were topping, you know, multi-story buildings, certainly over the roofs of most people's houses. You had couches and cars winding up on houses and so on and so forth. So it was a huge, devastating disaster. I was in third grade at the time, was, you know, ripped out of school and, uh, and and basically th we were thrown out of our house and, and uh, continued to be thrown out of our house and lived homeless for, I think, almost four months. Uh, now, we had another place that we ended up going to about an hour and a half out of town, but, um, y you know, it was because we were prepared. It's because my family was prepared for that. So, so when we start, so when I start looking uh, at, you know, at preparation, certainly, you know, obviously, you know, your five basic walls you want to cover first, food, shelter, clothing, you know, all of those things. But once all of those are met, then you start looking at creature comforts. And I have, and I continue to maintain that to be a priority. Even right now, as I'm talking to you right now, Chaz, I'm talking to you from the back of my RV. And the reason that one of the things that I really like about my RV and the way that I approach the RV camping world is I try to simulate to a certain degree anyway, what it would be like if all of a sudden my home was gone and I just, I had to be in, in this RV and I actually have little checklists of everything that I need for a, a various things. I have a checklist for doing the ask Noah show. I have a checklist for, I'm just leaving the house for a day. I have a checklist for I'm leaving the house for a week, so on and so forth. Right. And there are certain things I take with me as far as equipment that I actually pack in my go bag. So like there was an emergency, I need to just get, out of the house and I've got five minutes to grab something, there's one gigantic black bag that I take, I call it my go bag, and inside of it, the computer that is inside of that bag is a Panasonic Toughbook. Now you can pick up Panasonic Toughbooks on eBay for 100 bucks, 150 bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks, depending on what you want. This is not a terribly powerful one, it's a Core 2 Duo, and uh, has Ubuntu Mate on it, runs flawlessly, by the way. I have the built-in car dock that is in my Jeep, so I can, the, the, the Panasonic Toughbook, I have all of the powering stuff like that is all wired for DC, wired right into the vehicle, and so I can just set the Toughbook down into the little dock, and uh, it'll suck power, and, and, and that's how I power that. My thought with the, the, the Toughbook is I have all of my local data, so I have some entertainment on there, I have a, a, a bunch of very important documents, social security numbers, bank accounts, routing numbers, all of those kinds of things, so if I don't have access to the internet or if I, you know, if my, my credit union was under literally underwater and so I can't contact them or something, something like that happens, I have all the information I would need on either flash drives, some of them are flash drives so I can update them and so on and so forth, but a lot of that data is actually on that Toughbook. And that Toughbook lives inside of my go bag. As far as mobile connectivity, I 
I'd be lying if I to you if I told you I had a solid a really solid plan. I do have Ting Sim cards in that go bag, but I'm not you know that that presupposes that I would have access to a cell phone or a data connection to begin with, so that I can activate the card and 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 then activate the you know the the Ting Sim card and get myself data that way. Uh, so I I don't know if if that would really work so much in a in a in an emergency situation. Certainly, probably better than nothing. And uh, that go bag, incidentally, is also where I throw all of my old phones. So I have I have an, a, a deactivated S6 in there. I, I think there's actually even a, a, an S3. So I've got a couple devices that I can use, or if I wanted to provide communication to somebody else, I've got the SIM cards to do that. Again, assuming I've got an initial data connection to begin with. One of the other things I like about the Toughbook, it has all of the hardware ports, serial ports, VGA, Ethernet, all that stuff built right into the computer. Is that, is that going to give you something to go off of? Yeah, definitely some stuff to start augmenting my own go bag with. And real quick before I go, I wanted to thank you. I didn't call in. I didn't uh, call in last week, but uh, thanks for your intro, specifying the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. It's nice to know there are some people out there who know that uh, you know that weekend's for those who have made the alternate sacrifice, and not uh, those of us like me who are still living. Yeah. Well, did you serve? Yeah, three years army. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate your service. That my my respect in my hat my hat is off to you. Yeah, it's one of those things where, and again, I didn't want to you know drag the sh- drag the show into the weeds with it, but it's one of those things where I just you know I go out to these barbecues and I start talking to people and I'm like, so uh, you know, what do you think about uh, Memorial's Day or what do you think about Veterans Day at, at you know at their respective times? And um, you know, a lot of people they don't even have an idea, and so it's just one of those things. I thought, you know, I just take thirty seconds, just talk about it, and just say, hey, this is kind of where we're at. Again, phone lines are open, one 855 That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Make your voice here, become a part of the program. The Verge headline, Microsoft confirms it's acquiring GitHub for $7.5 billion. That's billion with a B. Microsoft is acquiring GitHub. After reports emerged, the software giant was in talks to acquire GitHub. Microsoft is making it official today. This is Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella's second big acquisition following its $26.2 billion acquisition of LinkedIn. GitHub was valued at $2 billion back in 2015. Microsoft is paying $7.5 billion in stock for the company in a deal that should close later this year. Now, there has been... Every every kind of rumor that you could possibly imagine has been going around the internet in the past in the past forty eight hours. It has been absolutely unbelievably ridiculous. In fact, when the story first broke, it was just a rumor. Well, Microsoft is rumored to buy GitHub, and of course, as a content producer, and I'm putting people on alert. I'm like, hey, you know what? I know that we've got a lot of stuff coming up, but you know, we might have to go live Sunday night or Monday, depending on if this story turns into a big thing or whatever turns out uh, we let it brew for a little bit and it, and it also seemed like there wasn't a lot to talk about early on so we just kind of left it alone until today till our usual airtime but uh, i have seen a lot of negative talk a lot of people are calling it get 365 is microsoft going to put a paywall on github that now and you you'll have to pay to use get 365 that's that's a big joke that's going around billion. That's a lot of money. That's a huge acquisition. Microsoft says that they're going to keep it developer focused. It's going to be developer first. That's the that's the direction that they're going. They're not going to just come in, sweep in and, and, and scoop it up and destroy it. 
they are going to maintain the relationship and the reputation that GitHub has had. No, I, I was as I was doing some research, a couple of things dawned on me. We have seen Microsoft acquire many different companies over the past couple of years, and they've had drastically different results. So March. So to, to back up just a little bit, March 31st, 2017, Microsoft announced the discontinuation of CodePlex. Now, CodePlex was Microsoft's alternative, essentially, to GitHub. Their original plan was to make CodePlex read-only in October 2017 before finally shutting it down on December 15th. And then Microsoft actually partnered with GitHub to allow projects to be migrated over to the GitHub service. But then in January 15th of 2018, the site is online and in read-only mode. So uh, we, you, you've kind of watched as, as Microsoft tried to compete in that realm and then failed. And then you know, they bought out their competition. And there's a lot of people, myself included, that were a little concerned at, at the first glance of that. And they, you know, because there is this, there's a saying in business, if you can't beat your competition, buy them out. Um, and Microsoft has used that tactic in the past. And so you have to wonder, is, is the question, it's a fair question, is that what they're doing with GitHub? And uh, Microsoft says, no, that's not what they're doing. But they are comparing it, a lot of places are comparing it, to the buyout of LinkedIn. If you look at LinkedIn, nothing really has changed with LinkedIn. Microsoft bought them out. They own them. In fact, that was the previous large purchase that Microsoft had made prior to this GitHub deal. And you think that... the front end really notices anything the cell continues to operate mostly autonomous but then i have to ask well how do we know it's not skype how do we know it's not nokia think about nokia microsoft bought nokia a very well respected well known uh, well liked cell phone manufacturer and drove them head first right into the ground i mean it was another disaster and so as, I, as I'm going through this stuff and I'm looking and I'm saying, okay, I understand that there's a lot of people that are saying, well, it, it could just work out like LinkedIn. Microsoft now loves open source. Microsoft loves Linux. That's, what that's the message that they're going with. You know, so that's the way that this is going to work out with GitHub. And I'm not sure I'm buying that. I'm a little skeptical. And turns out the rest of the internet is too because there's a hashtag trending on Twitter, hashtag moving to GitLab. Now, if you're not familiar with what GitLab is, GitLab is an alternative to GitHub. And unlike GitHub, GitLab can be hosted yourself and can be completely open source. What? GitHub isn't open source? No. GitHub is not open source. And that is something that is being missed in a lot of discussions. I've seen a number of different posts on Reddit. I've seen a lot of different people tweeting, and I've seen a lot of other podcasters slash YouTubers that are coming out and saying, Microsoft is going to quote-unquote close source GitHub. Well, you can't close source GitHub. GitHub is already closed source. Okay, so there really is nothing for Microsoft to close down. Now, certainly they could change the, you know, the payment scheme, but I'm not entirely convinced that they will. In fact, if you consider this, Microsoft actually has a lot of their own projects that are hosted on GitHub. In fact, Microsoft is the, has the largest code base of any project on GitHub, including their own projects like .NET, which they've open sourced. 
There's also alternatives from a well-known company in the IT sphere called Bitbucket, uh, the company being Atlassian. And uh, Bitbucket offers free accounts with unlimited number of private repositories. You can have up to five users in the case of the free accounts. And, and uh, Bitbucket will integrate with other Atlassian software like Jira, HipChat, Confluence, and Bamboo. So if you are, like we are, a managed service provider and you're using any of the ticketing systems or management systems, Bitbucket will integrate right into those systems and you can still use Git to push and pull. Um, so that's really, it's something worth considering. I personally have been really focusing on GitLab because I like open source and I think that's where the future is. And I think if you look at the hashtag that is trending switching to GitLab, then you know that that's where the rest of the internet is trending as well. Now, interestingly enough, I am good friends with one of the gentlemen that works at GitLab. So when this story broke, I reached out to him and I said, hey, would you be interested in coming on the program and just chatting about what GitLab can offer users? And he said, yeah, you know, you and the rest of the world are lining up for interviews, but yeah, we'll try and make time because, you know, we understand uh, we understand the voice that the Ask Noah Show has and the reach that it has, so on and so forth. So Ask Noah Show contributor Jason Plum, welcome back to the program, sir. Hey, Noah, good to be back. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. I know that not just uh, the time to come do this interview, but actually setting up the interview and, and working through some of the details has uh, has pushed some of your work off today. So I, I really appreciate you taking the, the effort. So your first reaction, you heard that Microsoft is buying out GitHub and Microsoft now will close a deal and they will own GitHub for $7.5 billion. What do you think about that? My first reaction is this is complete validation of what we're doing. I mean, if you stop and think about this, they're paying $7.5 billion for an arrangement that has to take, you know, eight months to complete. But just the code hosting platform and the social pieces that are a part of that are worth that much, right? But what GitLab actually provides as a complete set of tools provides so much more if only that portion is worth that much, how much is the product that we make eventually going to be worth when we target IPO in the future? So just so everybody is clear, if I want to start with uh, Git, GitLab, how hard is it for me to move my project from GitHub over to GitLab? Well, you've got two options, right? You can either use GitLab.com, and it's actually as simple as going into your account, hitting add new project, going to import and clicking on the GitHub button. Right from there, once you link your account to GitHub, you can select any project that you already have and it will actually pull over all of your code, all of your issues, all of your pull requests, which we call merge requests, everything about it, and it will just be migrated over a short period. Okay, so you've automated the entire process. You've made it very simple for people to move over to their own platform. Now, somebody's going to come and they'll say, I've heard everybody talking about hosting their own Git, GitLab, and I'm just a developer. I don't want to be a system administrator. I don't want to take on you know, threat mitigation and, and, uh, and updates and security vulnerability and all of that. I don't want to deal with any of that. Is there an option for people that just want to use a GitHub-like service, but they're not real comfortable having their source code controlled by Microsoft. Well, obviously, I can say that that's us, right? You can go to GitLab.com. We have free access. The version that you see on .com is actually our ultimate tier, right? So as an open source or an open project, 
you get access to 2,000 CI minutes through our shared runners, which is infrastructure we provide for our automated and included continuous integration and deployment. You get unlimited private repositories, and I believe it's 10 gigabit gigabyte limit right now when it comes to storage. Okay, and what does that cost? Well, I can say it again, but free. Free? So you don't pay anything. Because on, on GitHub even, before Microsoft took them over, you had to pay to have private repositories. If you didn't pay, if you were just using the free account, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm not a developer, don't play one on TV and don't play one on the radio, but to the best of my knowledge, if you signed up for a free account and you created a repository, that repository had to be in the public eye. You couldn't make it private. That is correct, as far as I can remember. Um, it's It's been a little while since I used GitHub on a daily basis for personal projects, for obvious reasons, but I believe you're correct. So what have what have you seen uh, as an employee of GitHub, or sorry, as an employee of GitLabs, what have you seen, uh, you know, your metrics? I mean, they must be going through the roof. I pulled some public uh, statistics that I could find, that uh, a graph that a guy was posting on, on Twitter, and uh, it looks like people are in droves signing up for GitLabs. Yeah, we are definitely seeing a significant influx. Uh, on Monday alone, we saw a 10x in increase in the amount of traffic that we had going on. So our public-facing documentation, the primary website, which is about.gitlab.com, saw a very significant jump as well. Not quite 10x, but quite severe as well. But over the course of the last couple of days, we have seen a significant number of projects move over. Now, I say significant because it's been an extremely large load to have everybody trying to import all at once. Other people would argue, rightly so, that with the sheer five, what is it, 57 million repositories or something like that on GitHub.com, the percentage that we've had come over is still relatively small in comparison. Now, the fact is, you'll see on Twitter all these people using, you know, hashtag moving to GitLab, which there are a lot of people using it because we've got, you know, 3,000 tweets and counting plus all the hashtags and everything that's going on there. When we look at the actual number of imports that were happening on an hourly basis, just checking by roughly end of day on Monday, we were to a point where we, we were seeing over 8,000 repositories per hour for a short period of time. That number is still wow. up and highly increased over what we were doing previously, but the traffic is definitely there. And these people, this is the point that I want to make, these people are coming over. Some of them have never actually used GitLab before. Some of them have had GitLab, but we're using it as just a mirror. They're coming over and they're realizing the stack of features that we actually provide. And that is an entire suite for the entire development lifecycle. So it's not just your code hosting and then you go to another service and you make use of their CI and then you go get somebody else to handle your ticketing. You do somebody else to do your, your QA and your container registry. We're providing everything involved. Your hosting, your issues, your planning, your milestones, your merge requests, the automated CI CD, deployment, Kubernetes integration, everything across the board so that you can have a complete development lifecycle all inside of one UI. So you've taken essentially what GitHub was doing, you've iterated on it, you've made it better, you've provided more functionality, and you still managed to keep the price free. 
with GitLab.com, that's correct. Now, there are paid tiers if you want support, some of the more advanced features like organizational single sign-on, more storage, additional uh, shared runner time, right? Now, you can always bring your own runner, and then you'll have however much time you want, okay? And they're ridiculously easy to set up and work on multiple platforms. Okay, so talk to me about that. I'm not a developer. What is a runner? Okay, so the GitLab runner is the actual execution engine for our built-in CI and CD, right? So you go into your repository, and some of you may be familiar with Travis or Circle CI. We have a YAML file, and you declare your jobs, your variables, and you set up a pipeline of these jobs. Some of these will happen in parallel. Some of them will be in an, an A through D order, and we'll go through in that runner, and what we'll do is we'll sp spawn up Docker containers, run your jobs, take any artifacts or cache items you have out of those, take those out, pass them on to the next job. So, for example, our website is actually deployed through our own GitLab CI. We actually have a job in our www-gitlab.com that as we make changes, it's merged into master. It actually automatically goes through, runs linting, checks behaviors, makes sure all of our links are good, and then proceeds to build the site out using, I believe it's Jekyll at the moment, and then turns around and publishes that out to our web services and CDN. So we can go from having a discussion, oh, we should probably change the wording on that, to having it live in under five minutes. And you're not doing any of that work by hand. You're, you're, you're automating that entire process, and then you're taking that infrastructure that's available and making that available to your customers. So if I'm hearing, if I'm understanding this right, what you're essentially what you're doing is, if you're a developer, maybe in the past what you were doing is you were using a third-party service, or you were spinning up maybe your own server and spinning up your own Docker container and pulling your code down, executing it, running, running these jobs, whatever. Now all of this stuff is going to be tied right into the service and provide it as an option, as a paid option, uh, to those users that would find that useful. Maybe the people that are making money off that code, now they have a way to get a slightly higher return on their investment. Well, I, I don't want to be misconstrued here. Everything that I've just mentioned is a part of the free product. Whether you're using GitLab.com as the free accounts or you're using GitLab CE, our core product, that's included okay. across the board. I see. So the, the runners are included even if you're on the free tier. Yes. Yeah, I, it's, it it takes me a little. I, I apologize, Jason. I I don't mean to um I don't mean to 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 misconstrue what you're trying to say. It's just honestly very shocking to me that you're able to provide such a such a robust experience, such an enhanced experience as to what was available from even the free tier of of GitHub, much less you know the paid versions. In a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me back to the Skype discussion with Microsoft. Microsoft bought out Skype. And they didn't really do a whole lot with it. It just kind of hung there for a while. And now you're seeing things like Hangouts and Hangouts for Business. Man, we have loaded G Suite and set businesses up with G Suite where they are doing all of these 
conferences that are auto, you know automatically tied to the TVs and, and 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 doing all these really cool integration things that Skype could have done and Link could have done Skype for business whatever they're calling it now could have done but they never did and the thing even the things that they promised it would do even the things that they claim it does it doesn't do very well and uh, and so and and this is just another example in this case you know we're talking about one giant instead of another but GitLabs has taken a core idea iterated on it, made it way better, and just continue to deliver on that user experience. I think that's absolutely fantastic. If you don't mind me asking, Jason, would you mind sharing the story of how you actually, uh, I, I guess, got your IT career started and, and launched and ultimately wound up at GitLab? Oh, wow. Um, I'm not sure we have the entire time for that story on the air. Uh, but to summarize it, um, I actually, the, the last thing I was doing before I started working in Linux and free and open source software ex uh, exclusively was actually working as a contractor doing code for a bank, uh, for which I can't tell you what I was doing. I'm still under NDA. Uh, but in my spare mm -hmm. time, I was getting involved with a distribution referred to as Arch Linux Arm. I was working with that in my spare time, which I apparently had plenty of thanks to that. Um, and then I was going and getting involved with the community. It was my first years really being really out there, going to conferences and things like this. And at my second year of going to Southeast Linux Fest, I actually walked up on a Saturday and talked to a guy, but I saw he had a board and I recognized the system on chip that was on it. So it's, it's a similar to the Raspberry mm -hmm. Pi. And I had a 30 minute conversation with him. And at the end of that conversation, he goes, where were you six months ago when I was hiring? And I said, I was unemployed. Within 30 days, I was working for that person. And I spent three years yeah. working with him, building in a Linux-based desktop. We made thin clients and we contributed back to the community. But we, a portion of our code base was proprietary, of course, because in some way we had to be able to, to mm -hmm. make money for what we were doing. And we had customers all mm -hmm. over the globe mm -hmm. and massive firms. Right. Um, and then I'm one of them. Three years yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you are indeed one of them. Yes. Uh, three years later, I'm at Southeast Linux Fest again. And one of our community advocates reaches out and goes, hey, I know what your skill sets are. We've got a position open. I think you'd be a really good fit. And I went, oh, I'm not really looking right now. But this person twisted my arm and twisted my arm. I was like, fine, I will at least go through the first pieces of the interview process and we'll, we'll go from there. We'll just figure it out. And mm -hmm. turns out that after going through all of the interview process and really learning what GitLab was about, I decided that I was going to take the job. Uh, so now I've been at GitLab for just under two years working as a senior distribution engineer. So we do the packaging, which is the official packages. We make the containers that people use. We're making cloud native charts to use with Helm and Kubernetes. And we do many, many other things. But again, I don't have all the time for the entire show. Yeah, no, you you got to you got to the point that I was getting at. I I was there. I it's funny because I from the sidelines I actually watched this entire story. I've been watching, I should say, watch this entire story unfold, and so it's been really really encouraging to me. And I've I've since had people approach me and say, 
I want to I want to get my next career started. I want to make more money. I want to to do that work that matters, work that I love. How do I get started? And I always tell them, find a Linux event. Go to a Linux event. Doesn't matter if it's Ohio or Self or Linux Fest Northwest or Texas Linux Fest or or uh, OSCON or LinuxCon or any any sort of those events. Go to them because the networking is absolutely fantastic. And you know, I think the crew itself does an exceptionally stellar job. I know that you and I both make it a priority no matter what's going on in life, no matter what's going on business-wise, personal-wise, we always make it an effort. We always make it a point that we are going to be at self. And you make quite a quite a hefty drive to get there. Uh, I guess this year I'm, I'm driving further. But um, but it becomes a priority, and it's because those, that, those kind of relationships with other human beings mean something. And so... Yeah, you know, and 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 then those networking opportunities mean something, and so it worked out for you, in, in the way that it inspired and transpired into an entirely new career. But then even today, myself and even the listeners are reaping the rewards of that because as soon as the story broke, I was like, "Huh, that's interesting." Everybody's moving to GitLabs. I wonder what Jason's doing. He works at GitLabs, you know. <laughs> so it was like, okay, uh, now we, you know, we've we've got that connection. That connection was made again at self so i th i think it's um i think it's uh it, it's 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 a very fitting poetic poetic something or other i don't exactly know what the word is but i think it's ironic i guess is the word i'm looking for that that might be that might be one i would maybe say confluence of events um but i i would definitely agree that if people want to get involved in open source there's one of the big things that they should try to do is, is to come out to a conference, whether it's one of the big ones or it's a little one. Maybe there's a, a meetup in your area. I suggest you do go. You have conversations. You learn about the people in the community. You learn about what their needs are and what your needs are. And you can actually try and, as people like to say in, in open source software, is scratch the itch. But at the same yeah. time, you go to these conferences and you can learn a whole lot from a lot of people at the same time. But... If you can't make it to a conference, then what I suggest you do is go out there and find something that you're interested in. And even if you're not a coder or you're not a sysadmin or, you know, you just want to be able to, to work with it better, that's fine. One of the core tenets that we have at GitLab, and I, I truly believe this, and I believed this before I was there, is that everyone can contribute. People don't seem to realize that even if they're not a highly technical person, if they can give good documentation or improve existing documentation to make software systems and sites easier to use and better to understand for the people that are going to come after them, whether that's as a coder or as a user or as an admin, this is something that's of great value. You will be valued in the community, and that is actually an entire career path that is available out there. So you don't have to be a coder. You don't have to be a hardware guy or a software guy or, you know, an admin with a decade of experience. You can contribute and you can do that by coming to these events or finding something of interest and in doing whatever it is you're capable of doing. I'm glad you mentioned that uh, for, for, for two reasons. The first is the very first episode of the Linux Action Show that I ever hosted, Chris asked me, he said, what are you passionate about? What would you like the first episode to be? And I'll never forget my answer because it is was a problem that I've been trying to solve for years, and I, and I didn't even have to think about it. I said, I want to know how non-devs can contribute to open source software because I'm not a developer. And so as I started making a reasonable amount of money off of selling open source software and supporting open source software, I wanted to give back to that community. 
And um, I would look and, you know, you can make a donation and not to say that those organ that those projects don't appreciate it. But, you know, let's face it, you know, a couple hundred bucks, even a couple thousand bucks, the Mozilla Corporation, you know, they're they're big company. Uh, so it's hard to feel like you're really making a difference. And uh, and so I said, well, you know, what are some what are some things that non devs can do to give back to the open source community? We did a whole episode about it. And uh, one of the things that I've always appreciated about you, Jason, is every time I have a chance to sit down with you, I say, Jason, I want to I ask you large picture questions. They say, Jason, how do I learn more about this piece of technology or this this idea, this concept? And, you know, I remember, I think the first time I asked you, I said, how do I learn more about hardware troubleshooting, like the nitty gritty kernel level type stuff? And you said, you know, you have to start thinking about problems in, in very big picture blocks. You know, what is actually going on here? Even if it's not right, just kind of try to construct in your mind's eye how this thing might work. And then you can break it apart and say, well, this is what you would fix or this is what you would concentrate on. Or let's dig into this and figure out where, where that is. And that actually resulted in you and I working on a, uh, a touchpad driver issue uh, for a laptop. And, uh, and, and we are, I was actually, actually, I actually was able to convert somebody to Linux because of that. And, uh, and, and so I've always appreciated your friendship and your mentorship and certainly appreciate you taking some time, like I said, in a remarkably busy day to come on the Ask Noah program. I know that the listeners appreciate it. I certainly appreciate it. Jason Plum is at GitLab.com. Is that right? That is correct. GitLab.com. And if you want about to find out GitLab. about how com. our things work, then you can go to about.gitlab.com. We've got all the details of what our features are, how they integrate, the various tiers if you so choose that you wish to have support or further advanced business integration features. That's that's all there. GitLab.com is where our repository and social bits work when it comes to issues, MRs, etc. And you can find us on Twitter at, at GitLab, and you can now, of course, see us with the moving to GitLab as well. Really appreciate your time, Jason. GitLab.com, if you're interested in checking that out, about.gitlab.com. We'll have a link, of course, to both of those in the show notes, and we'll be meeting up with Jason Plum at Southeast Linux Fest in just a couple of days. We have a remarkable broadcast schedule for you. It is going to be a marathon broadcast schedule, and those details are going to be coming up later in the hour. But if you enjoy what Jason has to say, believe me, you're going to want to talk to this guy and talk his ear off, ask some questions, because the guy really knows his stuff, and he really cares about open source, getting people on Linux, using Linux on the desktop, and making that experience better and helping other people, helping the next generation troubleshoot and understand, learn hardware, learn software development, those kinds of things. Again, open phones, one 855 450 noah 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. I want to go to Mar Marcus because he's calling from Portugal, and I don't want to keep him on hold very long. Hey, Marcus, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, Noah. How are you? Excellent, sir. How can we I help? I love your show. Your sh I love your show. Your show is great. And I wanted to make it, to ask you a question. I want, I, I, I'm using KDE Neon. And I want to create two virtual machines that I want to make sure that the guests can't access anything from the host. And I was, I was wondering whether you prefer Liberty for that or VirtualBox. Oh, sure. Easy question. Yeah. Uh, LibVirt D all day long, and let me tell you why. Uh, if if that answers your question you don't want to hang on the phone, um, you're welcome to catch the playback at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Otherwise, you can hang on the line. I'll give you the answer live. But the, uh, the answer is LibVirt D, and the reason why is because LibVirt D is a virtualization service that is specifically designed to house multiple enterprise-grade 
uh, virtual servers and provide separation all the way through. So SE Linux is aware of it. The firewall system is aware of it. The, you know, the system D is aware of it. All of these processes, all of the entire system is designed from the ground up to provide secure virtualization. And in fact, I'm, I don't think I'm at liberty to discuss exactly which one, but there are virtual VPS providers, so server hosting companies that are using libvirt-d to virtualize their infrastructure. And, and, and the reason why is because it's so well-renowned with their you know, with their security and the security practices and security as a forefront and threat mitigation, all those kinds of things. Now, one other reason, even if that wasn't the case, even if I didn't know any of that, even if I hadn't talked to some of these people and, and, and understood that to be the case, the second reason that I personally would use LibVirtD over VirtualBox when it comes to securing, uh, if you want a, a completely secure server, is because I trust the open source nature of LibVirtD. The entire stack, top to bottom, uh, forwards and back you can go through the code and people have and knocked on things and tried to beat things down and when they found problems they fixed them those kinds of things virtual box if you look at there you know not to say that there aren't people in large enterprise deployments using VirtualBox, but if you look at the vast majority of VirtualBox users, they are testing systems or they're developers that are testing something on their local machine. Okay, they're not using VirtualBox, and again, not that it couldn't happen, but there are not wide swaths of people that are using VirtualBox to host servers for hundreds of thousands of, of users. There are people that are doing that on LibVirtD. So for those reasons, I would absolutely use LibVirtD if you want a completely secure virtual machine. And the other thing is too is if you are if you're hosting a desktop environment then uh, you can use things like x to go to get almost metal like access to the virtual machine if you're using Windows you can use um, you know remote desktop service RDS uh, terminal services whatever um, but th there really is no I, I don't know if there's a huge advantage to run there's no real advantage that VirtualBox provides other than that they have a lot of things that they have click box to sized as I'm making that word up as opposed to libvirtd where you have to manually pass some things through. So for example, in VirtualBox, I want to connect a USB drive. I literally just click on the little USB dropdown and I click on the USB drive and now the USB drive is connected. In libvirtd, it's a little bit more difficult. You have to use virt manager. You have to remote connect over SSH into the server. You then have to go into the settings of that virtual host and you have to click on the USB device and pass that through. So a little bit more work to, 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 to get to the same ends, but absolutely worth it. And uh, I would give that a shot. And of course, if you need any help setting that up, uh, we'll have the our, our guide. We've linked it a couple of times before, but we'll throw it in the show notes again today on how to set up a LibVirtD instance. should take you no more than five minutes. And uh, if that doesn't work, give us a call back, 855-450-NOAH-655-450-66624. You can send an email live at asknoahshow.com. All right, I want to get to our upcoming coverage of Southeast Linux Fest. Southeast Linux Fest is this coming weekend. It'll run Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And the Ask Noah Show, Jupiter Broadcasting, is going to have a presence there the entire weekend. Now, we're doing something a little bit different this year. It, the, the thing that is so remarkable about Southeast Linux Fest, to me, is these guys care about Linux first and foremost, and care, most importantly to me, about the Linux desktop. And so they are perfectly okay with saying, let's try something. And if it doesn't work on Linux, then we just won't do it. And then we can try it maybe next year when, when we can try something else or a different way. And so there's very low pressure to failing. And what that, what that inspires me to do is to try a lot of really cool, elaborate things. And sometimes they fall flat on my face. 
and they ju- and things don't work out at all. And that's happened a couple of times. Now, you don't know about it because I don't make a big deal about it. I just go, oh, that didn't work. We'll try it a different way next year. And so we have invested thousands and thousands of dollars into some really cool Linux equipment, a lot of open source software, uh, some proprietary components that are that are built specifically for this purpose. But we are going to take and encode all of the audio that is being generated at the various talks, at interviews on the show floor, all of that stuff. We're going to encode those into IP packets. We are going to put them on a dedicated VLAN, and we're going to bring them all back into a master control booth that we are building at Southeast Linux Fest. And then what we're going to do from there is we are going to stream a whole bunch of stuff simultaneously. So the first thing is if you want to watch any of the talks in live time or very close to live time, it doesn't be exactly live, there's a lot of audio stuff, there's a lot of encoding that is happening and re-encoding, but if you want to watch live coverage of any of the talks, it's only five bucks. They are charging for it because there's a massive amount of infrastructure and there's a massive amount of time that goes into making this happen. Um, but it, and it's 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 just it's just pennies on the dime. But you are you are supporting people like myself. You're supporting people like Jeremy. You're supporting people like Zach, and you're supporting the idea that Linux users want access to this content, and they're willing to pay a, a minute amount of money to get that networking that that class like infrastructure. Now, why would you pay for a talk as opposed to just watching something online or just you know watching somebody recorded it on on, a, on you know on their cell phone or something like that? And the answer is two-way interaction. The ability to spit out a question and have an ongoing dialogue with the people that are actually at Southeast Linux Fest. That, that's a really, really undervalued thing. And that's why things like Linux Academy take off because of that two-way interaction and that ability to participate live and find this information out before any of your colleagues at the office do. So just five bucks, you can go to southeastlinuxfest.com slash live uh, you pay your five bucks and then you can choose any of the talks as they're airing. Now, in addition to that, I spoke with the Southeast Linux Fest folks and I said, hey guys, you know what would be really great? There are some people that are on a tight budget. You know, look at Jason Plum, really fantastic guy, doing amazing, amazing things, really giving back to the community. But you heard him say it a couple of years ago, he was unemployed. Five bucks, man, that's a meal right there. And if you're unemployed, five bucks is a lot of money. And I've been there. So I understand where some of those people are coming from. And so if there's any of you that are out there that are saying, listen, I I know that five bucks isn't a lot and I would love to give you guys five dollars. I just don't have it. It's OK. What we're going to do is I am going to be hosting a Southeast Linux Fest three day remote live stream. And on the live stream that I'm going to be hosting, I'm going to pick some of my favorite talks, some of my favorite clips of audio, some of my favorite people from the show floor, and I'm going to bring that audio and we're going to give that away to you for free. Again, you can do that at southeastlinuxfest.com slash live. You can either choose to be a full remote attendee, which has some really cool things that I'm not at liberty to talk about on the year because they're not being announced until the actual the day of, but take my word for it. It's well worth the five bucks. You will thank me later. If you can't afford to do that, if the budget just isn't working, then join us for the, the 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 second live stream that will be completely free and hosted by myself. Now, here's what we have lined up for you, because I am super excited of, of, of the people that we're going to have on, on this live stream that I'm going to be hosting. 10 a.m. on Friday, we're going to kick off the live stream. That's when the live stream is going to start. At 10.15, Stryker Leggett. 
This is a gentleman we had on the Ask Noah show last year. He's one of the lead developers for the free IPA project. This is the Linux Active Directory alternative that you can use to authenticate Windows, Mac machines, and Linux machines, all under directory service, single login, all of that stuff. You want to learn how to do this? This guy's your guy. He's going to show you how to do it. We're going to carry his talk at 1015. Coming up at 1130, right after that, containerize your enthusiasm. Containers are the rage. If you listen to any tech program, they're mentioning containers at some point or another. Robert Marshall is going to be hosting that. We'll carry his talk at 1130. At 1.30, True Colors by Sarah Henze. I can't tell you much more about this talk other than to say that there is limited seating. So that's that should tell you all you need to know. I can't give you details on, on what she's going to talk about, but all you need to know is that there are people chomping at the bit to hear this one. 245, Feeding Frenzy, Lessons Learned from the FreeNAS Community. If you're an Alan Jude fan, you might want to check this out. Now, Alan isn't going to be there, but Joshua Michael Smith is going to be giving a talk on what they've learned from the FreeNAS Community. And finally, yours truly will be hosting a live Ask Noah show at 4 p.m. Now, that's Friday. Saturday, again, 10 a.m., we're going to be kicking off the live stream, starting with orchestrating multi-service applications on Kubernetes. That's Mike, Michael Hardvik and our own Eric Nelson, who is uh, a friend of the Ask Noah show, a frequent contributor. And uh, these guys are going to be doing a fantastic job. Again, Kubernetes, kind of like containers all over the place. If you listen to tech, this is something you got to hear. 11.30 LVM and MD Raid tutorial on Darwin Sims. Now, I don't know if we've taken an LVM call here on the air, but I'd say once a week I get a call from a client or a potential client that says, I have an LVM problem, I don't understand it, or I want to understand it, or I want to know if I should use it. That's you. 11.30 Saturday morning, southeastlinuxfest.com slash live. Check it out. 1.30 professional video editing entirely on Linux. Oh, who is giving that talk? Let me see here. Oh, that's right. It's me. Over the past couple of years, I have taken it upon myself to really push to try to get all an all Linux broadcast system. And I have pushed Chris to do that at JB1. I have then replicated and, and iterated on that in my own studio. And a lot of people have asked me, how did you do that? How did you build a broadcast grade studio entirely on Linux? Well, I'm going to show you how to do it. How can you take video, broadcast it live all over the Internet, send it to a bunch of different places, bring it back, chop it up, edit it, and get it out on the Internet just the same as the pros are doing, but at a fraction of the cost with way more reliability, way more stability, way more security. That's going to be live both on AskNoahShow.com and on SoutheastLinuxFest.com slash live. So check that out. We'll also probably have that up on either the Jupiter Broadcasting Channel or the Ask Noah Show YouTube channel if you want. If you can't catch that show live. 2.45, right after me, Caden Live from Beginner to Advanced. That's being brought to you by Michael Tunnell, frequent Ask Noah Show contributor, industry expert. This is the guy that we go to for all of our graphic designs. This is the guy that we go to anytime we need something artistic done, website done. He's the guy that does it, and he does an absolutely fantastic job. Michael has owned a small business and been doing this for years for other people. Again, his workflow entirely on Linux, much like AltaSpeed Technologies is doing. He's just handling a little bit different of an audience. And uh, so both of us are going to be talking about media in, in from the perspective of somebody who says, if I can't do it on Linux, I'm just not going to do it. And then we looked up one day and went, oh, geez, we can do everything the big boys can. Again, 4 p.m., Ask Noah Show. We'll have a second live stream of the Ask Noah Show. This will be a brand new show, so you're going to get two Ask Noah Shows in a 24-hour period. And then Sunday, we're going to start the uh, day off at 10 a.m. with the Ask Noah Show, 1130 
we're going to carry James Richardson's on encrypting email with GNU PG. So if you saw the recent scandal that came up with uh, GPG, uh, you're going to find out exactly what steps you need to take to be able to encrypt your email with GPG. You're taking a very old technology, that is email, and bringing it into the 21st century and being able to use it securely. James is gonna show you how to do that. And then at 2 p.m. we have an exciting event. I've been asked to guest host with Michael Tunnell and the rest of the Destination Linux guys. And so we're gonna carry that show live at southeastfest.com slash live as well as all of the traditional streaming places. So if you're a Destination Linux, person destination linux has kind of taken the place of the linux action show as it relates to video content on linux that's where a lot of those people are going nowadays if that's you and you want to get uh, and you want to get a little bit more of noah in your life then come check out the destination linux i'm happy that those guys asked me to host with them and we're happy to do that right live from southeast linux fest so again southeastlinuxfest.com slash live i think we'll have a a schedule a running schedule if not I'll be there hosting the event, or at least that the the free live stream, and so I'll run through that schedule again, and we'll make sure to make frequent frequent announcements if things are changing or what they are. If you didn't quite catch that, again, full uncompressed audio over IP throughout the whole place. It took a lot of work, it took a lot of money, it took a lot of effort, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But I think we're gonna deliver a really fantastic, technically superior product, one that we've never done before. And I'm really excited to say that we're doing it 100% on Linux. This has not been done before. This is really cool. Now, Saturdays, uh, Saturdays, Ask Noah Show, which again is going to be at 4 p.m. We are doing a small business theme hour. I'm bringing Chris DeLuca in to host that, to guest host that with me. Chris, are you there? Yeah, but I don't know that I can follow Jason. Yeah, no, I can't follow Jason, Chris, so don't worry about that. I have a try. In fact, before I even call him on the show, I was talking to my wife, and I'm like, hey, you think I should put Jason on there? And she's like, yeah, I don't know. He's going to one-up you. I'm like, yeah, he, he frequently does. And just It's kind of hard to follow that guy. But but no, so the, the, the thing with the small business theme hour is you and I have a just a, just a, a, a dripping passion for small business. And there have been numerous times, both on your deck at like three in the morning and at previous years at Self and probably coming up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, sounds like at the end of July, where we just sit up and just talk and talk and talk about ideas that we have and, and, and ways to capitalize. And it has morphed into kind of a little community. And we have a Telegram group going now and we exchange small business ideas and people talk about their small business and ask questions about their small business. And uh, those of us that have been doing small business for a while help out those that are just getting started. And it, it's, one of the, it's one of the healthiest, most functional, most friendly, most beneficial communities I think I've ever been a part of. And we're turning that into a show and we're going to be doing a small business theme hour Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Chris, you're going to host that with me and we're going to answer people's small business questions or we're going to, we want to hear about your small business questions, right? So if you are a small business successes and failures. So if you own a small business, if you host a small bit or if you run a small business or if you've worked for a small business, we'd like to talk for you. And Chris, you're going to talk about, um, you know, some of the things that you've done uh, with, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say their name, but the place with the routers, VPNs and cameras. Oh yeah. You can say their name. Uh, that's uh, Heritage Farms Museum and Village. Yeah. So, and you basically, you built their network from the ground up. You've done everything from fiber to, you know, wireless, uh, you know, wireless, uh, you know, um, you know, I don't, what do you call it? Air links? Uh, they are ubiquity nano beams. Yeah, those. Those thingies. Yeah. yeah so, they, uh, uh, you're going to talk. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Go ahead. 
Uh, yeah, they were they were basically uh, they had one computer. They took all their money and put it in a cigar box. I'm not kidding. Uh, and I drugged them kicking and screaming into the 21st century. Uh, yeah, we have Wi-Fi throughout the village. Uh, we have buried fiber. I do have wireless links, and in some cases, we have uh, routers that we've had to build VPNs and running camera systems across those as well. The VPN system that you built is absolutely fantastic. Any one of these farms can go down without bringing the other one down. We're going to talk about how you've used OSPF to do all of the heavy lifting underneath. I mean, it's it's just you've done some really technically cool things, and uh, and you've built a lot of that stuff in the ground up. And you've even stumbled into some Linux along the way, right? You've gone from you've you've looked at virtualizing some things, and I think is was that one of the first places that you started playing with libvirt D. That is the absolute first place I started playing with libvirt D, and it was thanks to your suggestion. Um, I have not brought them fully into virtualization. I have virtualized a couple of servers for them. My ultimate goal is their desktops, like you've talked about before, and I'm just waiting for their Windows desktops to burn so that I can put them on Linux. Absolutely. And we, I bet you, Chris, we've done this show for, you know, a little over a year, and I'll bet you the most, I'd say the most common question I've gotten on this show is something about virtualization. How do I virtualize? Why should I virtualize? When should I virtualize? Those kinds of things. And, uh, and, and, you know, what you started at Heritage Farm, you've then brought into your day job and, uh, and replaced a couple, it was it ESXi that you were using before? Uh, yeah, we're currently, uh, replacing ESXi with, um, Red Hat Virtual, Red Hat Virtual, I haven't got those down yet, RHV, Rev. Yeah. No, no, it, gotcha. no it's yeah, not sure. over it. It's, it, actually, it's actually Red Hat. Oh, okay. So in the, in the, in, in the, the, the cool thing, the cool little sub-story in there was you started on CentOS, you started to build some familiarity, you went to your boss, you said, look at this cool thing, what it can do, look at how much better it is than ESXi, and he went... Yeah, sure. How do we do it? But you know, man, you got to bring us some support. And you went, no problem. Let me, let me place my phone call. And um, along the way, got to know some really cool Red Hat folks. And of course, we're going to be talking to them. So it's going to be a really, really jam-packed episode. I'm very, very excited for what we have coming up towards the end of the week. Uh, anything else you want to add? I th I, am I wrong in saying we're going to make that uh, small business group public at that point, or at least kind of talk about it? Oh no, absolutely. Let's let's make it public. I believe there's only. A handful of us in there now, and um, yeah, the the more the merrier. Uh, we can all definitely use other uh, each other's ideas and share those, and it, it, yeah, let let's let's make it public. The only rule, if I recall, is it, you just the discussion has to be somewhat tangentially related to small business. You just you know a lot of the other chats we 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 just kind of let them go rampant. Whatever people talk about, this one we're trying to keep kind of focused. Yeah, let's try and keep the politics out, and uh, unless the politics are directly related to small business, uh, like tax information or, I guess, things of that nature. But, yeah, let, let, I'd like to try and keep it just all about business and, and people's questions and how we can help each other. Awesome. Chris DeLuca, thanks so much for joining us this episode. I can't wait to see you on Saturday, buddy. Absolutely. Now, probably, I probably will see him on either Thursday night or, or Friday, but uh, Saturday is when our episode is going to kick off. So, yeah, I it's just I cannot believe as I sit back and kind of look at it now, I just I cannot believe how far we have gotten with Linux and broadcasting. 
Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. I won't give the name of it, but I will tell you that a major Linux publication is going to be running an article about some of the cool things that we've been able to accomplish at Jupiter Broadcasting with broadcasting on Linux. And of course, that's what my talk is going to be about. I'm going to be giving a presentation showing you how you can have a voice using open source technology and how that's helped a lot of other people do the same and how that's really catapulted us into uh, 2018. Hey guys, did you know this show is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and material that's referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telsis for providing our phone systems, Ben, our producer. And Sarah, our call screener, this hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com. Mm-hmm.